Hi everyone, welcome to the Sacred Musings podcast with me, Phil Saker. It is 17th of March 22, it is podcast number 27 and today we are talking about whether you can educate without indoctrinating. So welcome to the podcast everyone. If you're new here then this is the podcast where we think about uh, ideas from a Christian perspective just I guess trying to learn to think Christianly thinking about how we can apply what we know about the Bible what we know about God to things that are happening in the world and today we're thinking about education and how we can think about how we educate or particularly think about educate children. But I guess it could be educating anyone. Um, but what, what basis is there for education? Can you do it from a neutral perspective? Do we need God? Can we do it from a godless perspective? All of that kind of thing. That's what we, we're going to be thinking about in the main segment. But before we get on to that, we're going to just think about one or two uh, articles, um, things which I read. I'd particularly like to talk about an article by Rod Dreher. Um, so this is uh, an article written last week. It actually came out last Thursday, um, just after I recorded the podcast. But um, there we go. It's called This Diabolical Moment. And it's talking about, it starts out by talking about a conversation with um, Kate Zeldin, uh, Kale Zeldin did with Helena, who's a 23-year-old woman who's detransitioned from transgender to biological female. And um, he's reflecting on that conversation and he says it really moved him because he said it struck him how what you know sort of God's gobsmacked he said it was that it was like a spiritual warfare kind of thing it was demonic he said that what was happening to her uh, so let me read what he says let me quote from the article in explaining how she fell into believing that she was really male she talked about the role of Tumblr culture the online website that has been influential in convincing young women to transition. To sum up, she said that it's an extremely intense but cult-like culture that draws in vulnerable young women who are unsure of themselves and desperate for community and approval. She said that within that culture, everything that normie culture considers to be good, Christianity, sex with love and tenderness, etc., is considered evil. She explains that she was taught by that culture that extreme, painful, pornographic sex was good, and that if she wasn't prepared to submit to it, no man would ever love her. The culture overwhelmed her and all those in it with information, a maelstrom that confused them and uh, caused them to submit to ideas and practices that enslaved them to their disordered passions. Uh, this is not quite how she described it. I mean, using that language, but that's what she talked about. In other words, the culture shattered the inner lives of the teenage girls who participate in it by telling them that they are worthless and can only be made worthy if they remake themselves according to its rules. As Helena talks about the process of surrendering to this, chills ran up and down my spine, literally. She is not a religious person and couldn't have understood what she was saying in a religious context. But if you know anything about the literature of demonic possession, the narrative she told is very close to what happens in a case of possession. At one point she talks about how she gave herself over to these thoughts, and before she knew what was happening, they were controlling her. That's terrifying, isn't it? Thinking about how, you know, so many people, I think, just don't see when it comes to transgender, they don't see that, you know, yeah, oh, well, maybe it's just a phase. Maybe it's just a trend at the moment, but it's not really that bad. You know, it's just these poor kids are being. But actually, it's as Rod Dreher says, 
actually there's far more to it. It is demonic um, in that sense. It's it's evil. What is happening to these youngsters? And that really came over in the conversation. So I was really struck by that. Uh, but then after talking about that, he goes on to talking about what's happening with the Ukraine and with Russia, and particularly the way that the narrative is being controlled and the way that um, everything... You know, the sanctions are being imposed on Russia that, you know, a lot of Western nations are removing, um, you know, their McDonald's and they're, they're not doing business with Russia. They're imposing these kind of heavy sanctions. And this is what he says a bit later on in the article. Remember what I've been telling you. Everything being done to the Russian people now will eventually be done to people in the West who dissent from the party line. I have been saying this, uh, saying in this space that even though Russia deserves to be sanctioned for its evil invasion, it is utterly chilling how quickly governments and corporations got in line to destroy Russia economically. Corporations have gone far beyond what governments require. They are doing it at their own expense because they believed it to be virtuous. If you have been an observer of woke capitalism, though, you had better be chilled to the bone by how quickly an entire nation has been destroyed economically because capitalists decided that it was the morally correct thing to do. It does not require you to bless the Russian invasion to be in awe and terror at the power of states and corporations to control our economic lives. Yes, Putin brought this onto Russia, but Putin's evil deed also exposed how shockingly vulnerable we all are in this new world order. Wow. And then he goes on to talk about how, you know, if they, for example, if you express political opinions that are not the correct political opinions, then banks don't, you know, you don't have to have an account with the banks. All of that kind of thing. They, they could freeze your bank accounts. They could stop you having a bank account. Um, we could go on to the kind of social credit system uh, like China and so on. Uh, all of this, I think, is happening. And it's not a conspiracy theory. Nonetheless, we are still in the early stages but i think we need to take seriously what's happening when it comes to the this totalitarianism uh, which is going on and if you want more about you know thinking about how this may tie into the book of revelation i did a series on the book of revelation which is available on youtube i think the, the later ones were available on the podcast but you have to scroll back um quite a way through the podcast to find those um but yeah thinking about the mark of the beast thinking about the way that you know you you must conform to the state uh, in order to participate in the in just buying and selling or in ordinary things uh, it all seems to be happening um, and that's it is worrying but at the same time you have to remember that God is there and that the way to resist is actually by looking to him and by doing the things that God wants us to and having the kind of lives the kind of relationships that God wants us to so, um, yeah, I do um, recommend you have a little look at that. If you haven't seen the article, then I think it's a really important article for us to be thinking about anyway and discussing how we how we respond and, and seeking God about this as well. So anyway, that was my the one thing that I particularly wanted to mention today. I put some other articles from time to time on Twitter as well. If you follow me on Twitter, it's at Phil Saker. The link will be down below. And then um, there are a few others which you might be interested in too um, this past week. So, uh, yeah, with all that said, let's move on now to be thinking about education and thinking about um, whether it's possible to educate without indoctrination. So 
So let's look into that question now then. Can you educate without indoctrinating? That's the key question. Um, yesterday I was watching an interview, the trigonometry interview with Bonnie Snyder, and uh, Constantine Kissin said something insightful. He often says something insightful, but um, he said yesterday, uh, talking about woke education, and he said, have we just replaced one form of indoctrination with another? I think that's a really good question. You know, looking at looking back over the history of the Western world and saying, have we in the Western world just simply replaced one form of indoctrination, the way that we used to do things with this new kind of modern progressive woke indoctrination? So we were doing indoctrination before. That's what the woke uh, could say. We were, we were indoctrinating them before. We've just taken the old kind of indoctrination and replaced it with something better. Well, that's a really good question. And it, it, it kind of leads to that question. Is it even possible to teach facts and information without making any value judgments? In other words, can you teach? Uh, can you teach? Can you teach facts? Can you teach, um, you know, all, you know, all kind of fields without from a neutral perspective can you teach from a neutral perspective without bringing in your own values bringing in your own judgments and that's a really well that is the question isn't it when it comes to education that is the fundamental question that you need to answer before going you know, proceeding on to any kind of education because if the answer to that question is no you can't then you need to then you need to uh, decide what values you're going to start with before you start educating. Unfortunately, most of the people in charge seem to have a working assumption that you can teach in a neutral way. And actually, I think that's, I mean, as we'll come on to, I think that's one of the most dangerous places to be. Because when you think that you're being neutral, actually, you're open to being influenced by by things which you don't even realize and i think that's what's happening but anyway we can maybe come on to that another time so what we're going to do we're going to start by looking at some examples of how education cannot be neutral the first example is history so think about this think about teaching the second world war what are you going to say to children about the second world war who was on the right side of it and this is something that C.S. Lewis said in his book, Mere Christianity. What was the sense in saying the enemy were in the wrong unless right is a real thing which the Nazis at bottom knew as well as we did and ought to have practised? If they had had no notion of what we mean by right then, though we might still have had to fight them, we could no more have blamed them for that than for the colour of their hair. So what C.S. Lewis is saying here in a very, in his characteristically insightful and sharp kind of a way, is that unless there is some kind of moral standard that we share and that we shared with the Nazis, then uh, even though we might have had to fight them before, no, we couldn't have blamed them for doing what they did any more than we can blame them for the, the colour of their hair for an immutable characteristic like that. It's just, you know... Different people have different ideas throughout history and no one idea is more right than the other. Now, nobody, um, certainly nobody in the Western world, thinks that the Nazis were right. Or, well, um, there might be a, a few people, but uh, basically nobody thinks that the Nazis were right. And that's how history is, is kind of taught. 
And so in order to teach that, you have to stand on a moral foundation to start with. You have to say, well, I believe the Nazis were not just wrong in my opinion, but wrong. How do you get to the point of saying that they were wrong? You have to have some moral platform to stand on. You have to have a value. So that's the first thing that in order to teach history, in order to teach about things like World War II or about slavery, for example, then you have to have a moral platform to stand on. You can't just teach it from the perspective of X, Y and Z happened. You are teaching values when you're teaching history. So the next thing is science. Is science neutral? And again, you might think, well, science, it's based on the physical world, it's based on evidence, it's based on facts. Therefore, it's not susceptible to, you know, this kind of ideological bias, if you like. Um, but even science is, is susceptible to this. So let me read you again, quoting again from C.S. Lewis. This is from his essay, Is Progress Possible?, which I quoted from a few months ago in the podcast about the, um, the astonishing foresight of C.S. Lewis. It's a fantastic essay uh, from 1958, I believe. Uh, but let me quote you a little bit of what he says about science. The first is the advance and increasing application of science. As a means to the ends I care for, this is neutral. We shall grow able to cure and to produce more diseases. Bacterial war, not bombs, might ring down the curtain to alleviate and to inflict more pains, to husband or to waste the resources of the planets more extensively. We can become either more beneficent or more mischievous. My guess is we shall do both, mending one thing and marring another, removing old miseries and producing new ones, safeguarding ourselves here and endangering ourselves there. So science is not valueless, and that's the point that C.S. Lewis makes, that science itself is a tool, but it can be used for good or for evil. It can produce a nuclear reactor to power a city or power a country, or it can produce a nuclear bomb to destroy a city. And that's the power of science. What makes science good or bad is not science itself, but the, the people who use it. And so we can't ignore the question of values when it comes to science. You know, we have to think about what is good and right. You know, what is what is appropriate for us to be uh, to be looking at? What is appropriate for us as human beings to be studying? So science is not valueless either. And the third and final example I've picked is maths. And I'm sure Many of you must be sitting there thinking, maths, oh, come off it. You know, maths, maths, you know, one plus one equals two. That's just a fact, isn't it? Surely maths cannot be subject to value judgments. Let me read you a little bit from a Washington Times article from the 6th of June last year. Is mathematics racist? California education officials are considering applying a social justice paradigm to teaching K-12 mathematics that would erase white supremacy from the subject and eliminate gifted classes for students. Proponents of new math say the way the subject currently is taught is suffused with white supremacy. They say it handicaps some minority students by insisting on what they consider racist concepts such as arriving at correct answers. I'm sorry, I, I, I'm, I'm having to hold in my laughter here. The idea that uh, arriving at a correct answer is a racist concept is, I mean, it's beyond parody, isn't it? 
uh, it sounds like something from the Babylon Bee. And yet this is what this is what is happening. This is what people are saying that uh, arriving at the correct answer is a racist thing. So even maths itself, which you might think of as the purest of the of knowledge, if you like, you know, that um, uncorruptible is actually under attack from the you know, critical race theory kind of people. So what's going on here? The answer, I think, is to be found in the the philosophy that's been happening through the uh, through the twentieth century, and particularly when it comes to postmodernism. And this is something which um, I learnt about in college. And it was I, I remember going through a phase as a Christian um, teenager and young person. You know, every, it seemed like everyone was talking about postmodernism. And I apologise if this is kind of old hat to you, um, but I, I feel like it's fallen fallen a bit by the wayside because of it's just kind of succeeded, I suppose, and now no one's talking about it because people just have, have taken on board, especially in the um, the academy and universities. People have just taken on board um, all of the, the tenets, really. Um, so what does postmodernism say? Postmodernism says that everything is just a matter of interpretation. Nobody ever really says anything in an objective way. So I may say, um, I don't know, I may be saying, please, would you make me a cup of tea? You know, you might think that's a fairly simple and straightforward thing. But actually, the interpretation of it, you know, someone might think, oh, um, well, my interpretation of that is he's insulting me because he thinks I'm, um, you know, I'm just a slave. I'm just a servant. Or it's, it's someone's perception of what is being said that's the important thing rather than my, my communication. I don't communicate in any objective sense. It's how it's received by the reader or the hearer that the interpretation that's the important thing that was a big part of postmodernism so therefore if that's the case then everything becomes about power okay it's the person who is the most powerful who whose voice gets heard um so everything is if everything's a matter of interpretation the most powerful people get to determine which interpretation they is the correct one now that's why maths can be a symbol of white supremacy because by saying this is the correct answer we insist on it it's it's a power play it's saying we are asserting power over you because we are making you conform to this rather than saying as I believe that maths is there's just a truth there and it doesn't matter who you are, whether you're white, black or whatever, wherever you're from, you know, that it's just there's a truth and that that's our job as mathematicians to find the truth, to find, you know, one plus one equals two uh, and so on. Um, so, yeah, postmodernism makes everything about power. Now, at this point, you might think, is that really how people think? You know, because do people really think that there is no objective truth and that everything is about power? Because I, we do live in a funny mix at the moment. I think people have got some 
uh, people are not consistently thought through on this. So there are, I think there are probably aspects of which, you know, we do talk about the truth and, and think about the truth in a quite traditional way. There are other ways in which we think about, you know, think about things in a more postmodern way. But let me just give you a few examples of where I think um, postmodernism has kind of succeeded. Think about, for example, the interview uh, that um, Oprah did with Meghan and Harry, uh, Prince Harry and uh, Meghan Markle, um, a year ago. Was it last year, I think? Um, and Meghan talked about my truth. My truth. Now, I know that there was some pushback on this from the media, but I think what she said kind of resonated. Because the truth for her was not looking at the objective facts of the matter. The truth for her was her perception of the way that she'd been treated. And she had been, so she perceived being treated in a racist way and and so on. And that was her truth. It was truth for her. And I think a lot of people that resonated with, that's, you know, modern day society. Think about police hate incidents where the only thing necessary is the perception of offence. It's not the intent to offend. It's not whether something was said in, in an offensive way, but actually whether someone has perceived an offence to take place. Again, that's something that's come in um, more recently, and that's that's caused a lot of problems. Um, and just if you think just more broadly, think about all of the things, I mean, a lot of the things that I've been talking about on the podcast, but, you know, think about racism, climate change, lockdown, and so on. The thing that matters is not the actual facts of the matter, but the narrative. And, you know, all of the, the fact checkers, all of this talk about misinformation, really, it's been conforming uh, the view to a particular narrative rather than looking at the facts. So with all of those things, I mean, for example, I believe in America, uh, the number of black men who are killed by the police uh, is quite small um, and certainly a lot smaller than it is white men. And, you know, you can look into that. They, they did an interview on this with um, on trigonometry. I can't remember who it was with. Um, really good interview about this. And if you look at the statistics, it just doesn't back up the kind of Black Lives Matter sort of claim. Um, that's not to say there are no problems with racism, but, you know, it's certainly not the, the, the narrative. And, and, but this is the thing, you know, that the narrative takes precedence over the truth. And that is a very postmodern thing. You know, that there is no objective truth. What's more important is the narrative. And this is why with the lockdowns, you know, the government have been banging on the, the same drum and the experts and the media been banging on the narrative, not on the actual facts of the matter. And this is why it's such a big problem. So what we find really is that the foundations of education are being destroyed. They're being destroyed by this kind of postmodern way of thinking, which is that there is no objective truth. Even scientific or mathematic truth is not objective, that it's all a power play. And if maths can be racist, then what hope is there for, uh, for, for anything else? And there are no objective values. There's no right or wrong either, which is quite interesting. Um, and that just means that, you know, that, that, that it's all about power. Again, you know, you have to believe in transgender, for example, otherwise you're a hateful person. We will assert our power over you. 
because we don't believe there are objective values. We're just going to force you to comply. Um, it's funny, actually, how they, uh, in saying we don't believe there are objective values, they actually do believe there are objective values um, and they force you into it. It's it's a very kind of conflicted way of thinking. Uh, but you think about all of this. Is all of this a firm foundation for education? You know, it seems to me like this will destroy the foundations of education, that it's not possible to educate children with these um, with this starting point. If you don't believe there's objective truth, if everything is a power play, if there are no objective values, then education just becomes entirely subjective and entirely pointless, actually. Because what's the point of teaching children anything if there's nothing which is really true? You're just indoctrinating them entirely. So let's think now about the place of God in education. This is what it says in Psalm 19 verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. So this is talking about uh, God in the universe, not just, you know, God in a in a uh, in a box, if you like, in the corner. But the, the way that God kind of pervades everything in the universe. So let me quote to you what a theologian called John Frame says. John Frame, a theologian, this is his book, Doctrine of the Knowledge of God. The interesting result is that we need to know the world to understand the meaning of scripture. Through the study of the world, we come to a greater knowledge of the meaning of the law. This need to gain extra biblical knowledge to understand the Bible is not an onerous necessity. It is a natural, normal part of our task, and God expects us to do it. The Pharisees were reproved because they failed to apply the Old Testament scriptures properly to events of their own time, namely the ministry of Jesus. Thus, every fact tells us something about God's law. Everything we learn about eggs or petroleum or solar energy or cold fronts, all of this information shows us something of how we may glorify God in the use of his creation. It helps us exegete 1 Corinthians 10.31 and much more. He quotes one, uh, mentions 1 Corinthians 10.31. Let me just quote that for you. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So what this is saying is that everything in the universe is there from God and is there to help us understand God. Uh, we need to, to understand God in order to understand the world. And we need to understand the world in order to understand God. You know, there's kind of a mutual interplay between those two things. So I've got a diagram here and it's only a simple diagram. If you're listening on the podcast uh, rather than watching on YouTube, then um, I'll just describe it. It's very simple. Uh, our understanding of the world there on one side with a double arrow towards our understanding of God. And that's what that's what I'm trying to say, that our understanding of the world is bound up with our understanding of God. The two things, there's a kind of mutual um, interplay between those two things, that we need to understand God to understand the world. We need to understand the world in order to understand God. 
think I mentioned this a few weeks ago. Uh, John Calvin, he quite famously begins his institutes um, talking about how do we know ourselves? Is it do we begin with God, uh, knowledge of God, or do we begin with knowledge of ourselves? And he said we need the both because we are God's creatures. And it's the same thing with the world. You know, we need to understand God to understand the world and vice versa. And this is the thing that this is God's world. We do not understand ourselves and our place in it without reference to him. Every fact about the world is for the glory of God. That all truth is God's truth. I think sometimes Christians have got this, uh, have at least portrayed the impression that God is there in the little corner of the world marked the religious box. And, you know, the rest of the world kind of carries on without it. And that when we go to church on a Sunday, or when we read the Bible, we kind of interact with God. But the rest of the time, he's kind of absent. But that couldn't be further from the truth. That everything in the world is for God's glory. Everything in, if you like, the secular world. You know, talking about, John Frame mentioned the petroleum and eggs and cold fronts. You know, everything, every aspect of human life is made by God and is for him. And we must understand it properly everything we know in the world should be interpreted through what we know about god and through what we know about sin and the creation and you know the fall and and the redemption through jesus and its final um you know destination in the new creation and so on but you can't understand these things properly unless you understand that and so this is why it, it plays into education because you cannot understand the world properly unless you understand God and the more you understand God the more you understand the world and the more you properly understand the world the more you understand God as well one person who really saw this clearly was Francis Schaeffer and I know I've quoted him a lot on the podcast and I do well, I don't make any apologies for that, actually, because I think he's a very he's a real um, a, a key thinker, actually, on this kind of thing. Um, I think he saw what was happening in the 20th century, the currents which have led us to where we are today. And I think that's why his writings are so important. So let me read you a little bit from his book. He is there and he is not silent. And here he is talking about. Uh, how we we try and explain the world without God. Beginning with the impersonal, everything, including man, must be explained in terms of the impersonal plus time plus chance. Do not let anyone divert your mind at this point. There are no other factors in the formula, because there are no other factors that exist. If we begin with an impersonal, we cannot then have some form of teleological concept. Uh, teleological by the way is talking about a purpose and purpose is something which can't exist uh, beyond um, you know if everything is random and chaotic then there can be no purpose Um, so that's what he's trying to say there to carry on no one has ever demonstrated how time plus chance beginning with an impersonal can produce the needed complexity of the universe let alone the personality of man no one has given us a clue to this So what he says is that if God does not exist, we are left with uh, um, impersonal plus time plus chance. That's all there is. 
And that is not a sound basis for anything, for philosophy, for, um, for any knowledge at all. You know, can we say we know anything truly if we are simply the product of the impersonal plus time plus chance? It's not a basis for, for the universe and for the, the complexity of the universe, let alone human life and the fact that we are relational beings, the fact that you know, we are complex creatures, the fact that we are rational, all of these kind of things. There's no basis for it if you take God out of the equation. And I hope that that immediately kind of um, helps to see what the implications will be for education. So uh, Schaefer goes on. Um, there is only one philosophy, one religion that fills this need in all the world's thought, whether the East, the West, the ancient, the modern, the new, the old. Only one fills the philosophical need of existence, of being. And it is the Judeo-Christian God. Not just an abstract concept, but rather that this God is really there. He exists. There is no other answer. And Orthodox Christians ought to be ashamed of having been defensive for so long. It is not a time to be defensive. There is no other answer. And then he goes on. It is not that this is the best answer to our existence. It is the only answer. That is why we may hold our Christianity with intellectual integrity. The only answer for what exists is that he, the infinite personal God, really is there. And this is what Schaefer is saying, that if you don't have God, you don't begin with God, then what you are left with is the impersonal plus time plus chance. That is not a basis for society. If God is there then that's the ground of everything we know, the ground of all truth, the ground of all being and knowledge and existence and everything. And he says it's not the best answer, it is the only answer. The only answer is that, that he really is there. Now because, uh, and this is the interesting thing I've noticed about some people like um, Douglas Murray, for example, um, and other people, they lament the fact that we are no longer... Um, Christian in the West and yes I mean I agree but they still don't believe in God or don't I mean don't seem to believe and I find that baffling because you know you can say well God gives meaning and order to our world and I I agree but if God doesn't actually exist then it's all just a sham isn't it because you know it, it doesn't give meaning to anything if God is simply a, a construct, then it might be use, a useful construct, but at the end of the day, it's not one which, which is binding on anyone else. You know, the only thing which really gives us meaning is if God is there, he is really there, and he has made the world in a certain way, and he has communicated with us. That is, that's the only firm foundation for any knowledge at all. And I'd just like to, to quote Doug Wilson as well, just because I like this quote. This is what he says. What we need around here is a Trinitarian epistemology, one that is not beholden to the arrogance of Descartes, and that is equally not beholden to the arrogance of the postmodernists. And just in passing, at bottom, it is always the same arrogance. Postmodernism is just modernism's ugly little brother in drag. Modernism says that God cannot have spoken, 
because I have spoken to the contrary. Postmodernism says that God cannot have spoken because nobody speaks, really, when you think about it. The key thing they share, and which the Bible calls unbelief, is wrapped up in that phrase, God cannot have spoken. This is what he's saying, that uh, at the end of the day, our only sure knowing comes from God has spoken. And modernism says, well, God can't have spoken because I've spoken. Postmodernism says, well, nobody speaks really. Even both of those things are shutting up God. And that when God speaks, that is the, the basis for our knowledge. And when we know God as the basis of everything that we know, of all of our, of all of our knowledge, that's when th- everything else will fall into place. So let's summarise at the end as we finish. Education cannot have a just the facts man approach. There is no such thing as neutral objective truth. You can't have it. That in order to say anything, you have to bring in values, you have to bring in perspectives, you have to, uh, you have to bring in all of those things. You need what we call a worldview. You can't say anything true without having a, a worldview first, and everyone has one. Now, there is no such thing as neutral objective truth. So therefore, you can't teach from a neutral perspective. And then the question becomes, the key question is, are we teaching from a perspective of truth or a falsehood? Have we picked the correct worldview to, to teach from, to stand on in order to teach? And what I would contend, and I hope that we've seen this as we've gone through, is that Christianity is the only rock on which all truth can be built. That there is no rock other than the existence of, as Francis Schaeffer said, the infinite personal God, the God who is there. There is no other rock on which all truth can be built. And that's, I mean, that's the case for everything in society. But I think it's particularly the case for um, for teaching. My Bonnie Snyder in the interview yesterday said that, you know, the culture war, um, certainly teaching is one of the fronts on which that war is being fought. And I think that we need to to teach our children to think through where where what the truth is, not just to accept, you know, what um, what is being said, but to actually say, well, what makes something true? How do I know that it's true? Think about think about these things and really, you know, look at different different viewpoints and examine worldviews. You know, which one is consistent? How do we know we know what is true and so on? And I think it all comes back to Christianity. It all comes back to the existence of the God who is there. He is there and he is not silent, as Francis Schaeffer said. So I hope that that's been helpful. I might come back to education uh, next week. Let me know what your thoughts are in the comments below or on Telegram or by email, sacredmusingspod at gmail.com. But let's finish by looking at a thought from the Bible. So the final reflection from the Bible this week is the um, end of the Sermon on the Mount. This is what Jesus says in uh, Matthew chapter 7 from verse 24. And this is a very famous sort of Sunday school kind of passage. Um, but I think it's a really important one for us to be, to be looking at. So Matthew 7 verse 24. Therefore, 
Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, because he taught as one who had authority, and not as their teachers of the law. So what Jesus uh, outlines here is the two, two ways to live. There's building on his teaching, building on Jesus, building on his teaching, or there's building on not his teaching, the opposite. And to build on his teaching is like building on rock. But to build not on his teaching is like um, building on sand. Now, just to put this into a little bit of Middle Eastern context, um, in those days, and I think this is still the case today in Israel, that um, it was kind of on this, um, the soil there, there, there's soil which kind of looks like rock. It's hard and it looks like rock in the sun because it's hardened up. But when the rains come, then it softens up and it turns to mud. And there was a case, I believe, not, not too many years ago, where I think there was a nightclub or you know, a building collapsed because the foundations had not been laid down into the rock below, but only into this kind of topsoil stuff, which looked a bit like rock, but wasn't actually. And this is exactly what Jesus is saying, that um, you know it may appear that we're building our lives on rock, but if we're not building it on him, then when trouble comes, we will find that we're not actually building on rock at all, that we were just building on sand and that it collapses. Our lives collapse or the country collapses. And I think this is really appropriate to us well, as individuals and as a nation, which is what do we want to build on? Now, as we were thinking about education in the main, um, in the main section, what are we building on? Are we building on the rock? Are we building on the rock of Jesus? Are we actually, you know, putting his teaching first and his understanding about uh, about the world, knowing, you know, he is the God who is there? Or are we uh, instead thinking about this kind of secular worldview, whatever it is, trying to push God out of the picture where we think, oh, we can have everything without God. We can just do what we like, because what we'll find is that when trouble comes, when the rain comes, whatever that may look like then if we haven't been building on the rock, it will be exposed and will be found that uh, we don't have any foundations. I think that is what's happening in Western societies at the moment, that we are finding out that we don't have any foundations and that we are finding that when trouble comes, it's all collapsing. That's because we haven't been building on the rock. But this is an encouragement because... For those who have, as individuals and churches who have been building on the rock, then when the rains come, then the house stands. And that is the way to stand. That's the way to stand in our own lives. And that's the way to stand as a church and as a country, is to, to build on the rock of Jesus Christ and his teaching. And he, as it says, he, te he teaches, he taught as one who had authority, that his words really come with authority they are true words they are the truth 
and they are what we should build our lives on, what we should build education on, what we should build the church on, everything, because he is the truth. Christ the truth. And um, it's it's good news. So let's pray and ask God for his help in being able to put these in, uh, these things into practice in our own lives, as well as in whatever is, is going on as a nation. And so, Heavenly Father, we uh, pray that you would help us to put this into practice, to build our lives on the rock of Jesus Christ and everything that he taught. We pray that you would help us to listen to his words and put them into practice. And we pray that you would help us uh, as individuals, as a church, as a nation to be building on the rock. And we do pray, Lord, that when it comes to our schools, when it comes to our children and education, that you would bring about a real change so that our children are being taught, um, being built on that rock as well. And that they will be being taught from uh, the truth, not from falsehood. And that you would... um, Bring about, Lord, a real a real change for the better. And uh, we know that there are so many worrying things going on at the moment. Please help us not to worry. Please help us to trust you and trust in the, uh, that you are the rock and that you are sovereign over all. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thanks so much, everyone. Um, Don't forget, if you're on YouTube, you can like, subscribe. And um, if you're on the podcast, you can leave me a rating, even a review. And all of those things just kind of help um, other people, um, you know, find find, um, sacred musings. Um, There is a buy me a coffee link if you'd like to support me. And someone became a a regular supporter uh, this week. I do appreciate that. That just means, you know, um, rather than doing things on an ad hoc basis, you can kind of just do do things on a monthly basis. And that's really... uh, I really appreciate that, actually. Um, but, you know, it's, it's obviously completely up to you. I'm sort of freelance. Um, so, you know, I'm and everything is ad hoc with me. Um, anyway, enough about me. So, um, yeah, thanks so much for joining. Don't forget to join in the comments below on YouTube or on Telegram or email me through sacredmusingspod at gmail.com. Look forward to hearing from you. Let me know your thoughts. And if there's anything that you'd like to hear about to cover in a future session as well, I'm interested to know if there's anything that um, you know I should be looking at. So all of that said, yeah, God bless. Take care. See you again soon. And um, yeah, God bless. <laughs>